a common experience for us all is that we can set out to do a good thing and end up doing the opposite. It's like we can have the best of intentions, but we still blow it. I think about my own life. I have a desire to be patient and loving with my kids, right? All right, so there's some mornings where I'm, I'm praying in the Word and I'm crying out to God, and my goal is, Lord, make me patient once I start interacting with my kids. And so I go downstairs to have breakfast, and boom, quickly, impatience comes out of me. Quick temper comes out of me. It's like something takes over me and goes in the opposite direction of my intentions. Does anybody have a clue what I'm talking about? Anybody? Oh, a few of you. Good. You know what it's like to like pray for something and, and, and attempt to change and then end up doing what you don't want to do. It's like you have the best of intentions and then they go awry. And you want to kick yourself. Because what you find to be your experience is you're not doing what you want to do and that which you do not want to do, you do. Someone said it's kind of like playing golf. Maybe you've played golf before. You can have the best of intentions in golf. But you get out there and you end up doing what you don't want to do. And that what you want to do, you don't do. It's a common experience for all of us. It's what we experience as human beings. And thankfully, I wanna, we have somebody in the Bible who kind of lays it out like, what is going on? What's going on within us as believers? But it's common. And it's in the book of Romans. And this morning... We're going to be very ambitious in an attempt to study all of Romans 7. So let's go ahead and turn to Romans 7. But before we look at all of it, I just want to kind of give you a taste in the Bible of your experience. As the Apostle Paul lays it out, what you feel. I'm just going to read a portion of Romans 7 to get us in the mood here. So let me start with Romans 7, verse 15. You ready? Verse 15. See if this is not you. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's kind of the question we're going to ask today. It's like, who is going to fix this mess we're in? And the answer is, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one. You see, Jesus meets you in your struggle and provides a way of forgiveness and change. Jesus meets you in your struggle and finds a way, provides a way of forgiveness and change. And that's, change is that, that, that concept we've been hitting on for the last few weeks. And I've been asking the question, do people really change? And some of my lower skeptical pastoral moments, I say, no, people don't change. But the Bible says otherwise, and over time, in Christ, people do change. And so what we've been building for the last several weeks is something called a case for Christ-like change. A case for Christ-like change. And the first point is that you better expect to change, confess your ruin, your sin, receive rescue in the gospel. And the next week we talked about embracing your death and resurrection in union with Christ. Your old self and Adam is dead New self is alive in Jesus. And the third is that we need to exercise your freedom in becoming who you are in Christ. And the fourth, you've got to come up with a strategy for righteousness, to walk in godliness. And today we're going to add on to that something called acknowledge the struggle. Our congregation is full of competent people. You are. You're the top of your game. I understand. Top of your class. Top of your job. Competent people exist in our congregation. Now, a lot of those competent people are very proud. Anybody proud in here? Yeah. And let me just put it in, in, in street terms. You think you're really cool. So what do you do when you combine competence with pride and coolness you have a congregation full of people that don't want to admit their stuff, their junk they're going through, right? You don't want to acknowledge there's something wrong because that would bring your competence into question or that would bring your coolness into question. But you're not going to grow unless you start to lay it out, the struggles that you have with sin. And you're, you're not fooling me. I've read the Bible. I know there's a struggle going on with you and with me. But this is a safe place to acknowledge the struggle. Maybe not here on Sunday morning, you know, keep that to yourself, right? But tell your ethos community. Hang out with people. Acknowledge what's going on in your struggle with sin. Yes, that's what we want to do. Bring it to Jesus. He meets us. He forgives us. He changes us. And that's kind of what we're going to see as we start to move into Romans 7 this morning, this struggle with sin. And I just want to say on the outset, this is, this is a very difficult chapter. This chapter is so difficult, I decided that I was not going to preach it, but I was going to assign it to someone else. In fact, I assigned someone else to preach this chapter. I assigned it to our executive pastor, Pastor John. Everything I don't want to do, I give to him. And so I gave him Romans 7. I said, John, all you, man. And then I felt so guilty for doing that. <laughs> so then I took it back. And, and it's, it's just a hard chapter. I've been studying it for months. I, I have memorized this chapter. There are different views. I've read books on this chapter. It's, it, it's just a mixture. I've actually shifted my position on my view of it. I've been waffling back. I'm just saying it's a difficult chapter, all right? You get me. 
And so I, I'm just going to, I land, I have, a, I have a certain position on this chapter, but just to let you know, there are other interpretations of what's going on here. Some theologians and scholars will say this is not the experience of Paul. This is the experience of Israel in relation to the law. Other theologians and scholars will say, no, it's not the experience of Israel. It's the experience of Adam and all of humanity in relation to the law. And then some scholars will say, no, 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 it is Paul, but it is Paul's experience before he became a Christian. Now, I'm not a big theologian and I'm not a scholar, but I'm going to go out on a limb here because I'm a pretty simple person. I'm going to say this. The Apostle Paul says, I, in this chapter, like a hundred times. Well, not a hundred, but a lot. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. All right, you ready? This is really far on a limb. But every time he says, I, he's talking about himself. It's a stretch, but that's where I'm going with it. I understand the other inter... I get it, I get it. But I'm going to go with that. And I'm also going to say that when he says I, he's not only talking about his pre-Christian struggle, and he will, but he's also talking about his struggle as a Christian. And his struggle is our struggle. And I would say it's the struggle of all humanity, of wanting to do right and not able to pull it off and being frustrated. But the difference between an unbeliever having that struggle and the believer having that struggle is that Jesus meets us in our struggle with grace, forgiveness, and change. Now, what makes this chapter so difficult, if it wasn't difficult enough, is that Paul is primarily writing this chapter to talk about the Old Testament law. And it's the Old Testament law that we have a hard time figuring out how it fits into the Christian life. It's almost like someone in Paul's congregation in Rome said, Paul, what about the Old Testament law? And then in response, he wrote chapter 7. So I'm going to try to keep you organized as best as I can and give you kind of an outline where we're going. If this was helpful, then use it. Here we go. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the Christian is dead to the lost spouse. And has married Christ. We'll see that in a moment. Second thing we're going to see in verses 7 through 12 is that the law is not bad, but sin abuses it. And third, sin's attempts to abuse continue even in the Christian. And the fourth, Jesus rescues us from this abuse. And I'm tell, let me just tell you this. You're going to have to stay engaged this morning because you're not careful. You're going to be glazing over really fast. This is hard to understand. This is not easy to understand. If you want something easy to understand, come back another week. This is really hard. And for those of you who have finals this week, it kind of gets you in the mood for finals. Engage. For those of you who don't have finals, please engage. We just want to study. It's, it's going to be hard. I'm warning you. I don't do a very good job explaining it this morning. This is hard. And I've worked on it for months. So let's, let's dive in together, show some effort with me, and then discuss it in your ethos community and flesh it out some more. So let's go ahead and jump in. And seeing the Christian is dead to the law, spouse, and married to Christ. Start with verse 1. It says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul's been talking about sin and justification and growth and grace, but he's just been barely touching on the law. And it's like a Jewish Christian at Rome is asking the question, what about the law? Are you downgrading the law? Are you dissing the Old Testament law? 
That's the question. And so Paul creates this argument that goes like this. It's very difficult. He says, yeah, the law is legit while a person is living. I mean, even in the United States, if you are alive, the law applies to you. But if you die, you no longer have to keep the speed limit. That makes sense, right? Yeah, I don't have to keep, I'm, you're, you've died. You don't have to keep the law. And so that's the argument he's making, but he's making it within marriage. See if you can track with him. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, that makes sense. So she's married to her husband. Now, if she divorces him, she's called an adulteress according to the law. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry another one. She's not bound by that law of marriage. Now, Paul's talking like this because a death has occurred in relation to the Old Testament law. And he switches the imagery here, and he says the death is not the law. The death is you, believer. You're the one who died. You with him so far? All right, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Oh, boy. So no longer is the believer under the condemning effects of the law because what? They have died in union with Christ, been crucified and buried, and raised in union with Christ to obey the law. Now get this, who obeyed the law perfectly in your place? Christ did. And so now the believer is not trying to earn their salvation through keeping the law, because that is impossible, but by looking the one who kept the law. And I want to make sure you get this. If you talk to someone on the streets and ask them, how do you get to heaven? When you die one day and you meet with God, why should he let you into heaven? And most of them will say, because I'm a good person. Basically, they're saying, because I've kept the law, I've done the right things, I've done more good than the bad. And, and then what you need to do is kind of just press a little bit, press a little bit, and say, really, you're a good person. Well, if you are so good, wouldn't you say that if you keep the Ten Commandments, you're good? And they say, yeah, Ten Commandments are great. Okay, well, let's do a little test here. Have you ever lied? Oh, yeah. Have you ever committed adultery? No, I've not committed adultery. Well, Jesus says if you lust, you've committed... Okay, I've committed adultery. Have you ever murdered? I've never murdered, but Jesus says you hate. That's murder. Okay. And so you can just go commandment by commandment by commandment. And what you'll find is that the law will expose them and their sin. And the only way for Christians, for anybody to go to heaven, is to put their faith in one who has kept the law perfectly. And that is Jesus. And it's through him we gain acceptance. And in a sense, when a believer, when someone puts their faith in Christ, they're no longer married to the condemnation of this law, the way Paul's explaining it. They are now, in a sense, according to this illustration, married to Christ because they've died. The condemnation the law brought is no longer in effect. They have married a new spouse. And that's Christ Jesus. That's kind of how the argument is going. Okay. So far, so good. All right. I want you to do this. 
we're going to move on, and we're going to skip a little bit here, and we're going to ask the question that a Jewish person perhaps is asking within this congregation. I just explained something to you, and if you are a good Jewish believer, or Gentile believer, it doesn't matter, ask this question. Is the law bad? If I'm so condemned and I break all these commandments, the Ten Commandments, is the law bad? And it brings us to point two. The law is not bad, but sin abuses it. Let's keep going. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Oh, okay. So the law is not the problem. It seems to be that sin is the problem. And I can put it this way. It's almost like sin hijacks the law. And when sin hijacks the law, it leads to all types of sinning. You see, the law is a good thing. It's a good standard, but it uncovers sin. So take coveting, for example. Paul, he's a good Jewish person before he became a Christian. He could never put his finger on the coveting, but maybe when he was in Jewish school or when he was a teenager, he hears about the commandment of not to covet. And it's like, oh, it shows that he is a sinner. And once the law reveals your sin, you see it as a standard you cannot keep, and it is all downhill from there. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, it's not that those people who don't have the commandments or the Ten Commandments are not sinful. The idea here is that the law exposes sin. It stirs it up. And so Paul, what he's doing, he's reflecting on his pre Christian experience that is he's engaging with the law, he's seeing that he can't keep it. No matter how moral and how good he tries to be, the commands keep getting his sin stirred up because sin is hijacking the law. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And then he does this interesting description here in verse 9 through 11. He says, he says I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. He's like, man, I was good. I was a good Jew. I was keeping the commands. And the law kept bombarding me and cutting me down. And I want to say to you, and I want to say to you, whether you're a believer or not, the law will cut you down And expose your sin. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven, the law will cut you down and expose your sin. Because you can't keep it perfectly. Only Christ has kept the law perfectly. The problem is what the law does is that sin comes in, hijacks it, seizes the opportunity through the commandments, and kills the person. Separates them from God. So what's the problem? The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Our hearts are the problem. It's not out there. It's in here. So Paul sums it up, his point here in verse 12. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there's nothing wrong with the law. It's holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with it. But the law cannot save you. The commandments cannot save you. So I say to all those who are trying to get into heaven... 
by being a good person. If there's anybody in here that's trying to be, get into heaven by being a good moral person, I want to say to you, according to the Bible, unless I'm missing something, the Bible's very clear, there will be no self-salvation. There is no self-salvation. There is no getting into heaven by keeping the commands of God. There is no self-salvation. Because the law, it comes in, exposes your heart for sin, stirs it up. There'll be no self-salvation. But hey, what about for those who are believers? Come on now. We're believers, like we follow Jesus. What does the law have to do with us now? Is the law just totally done for us as New Testament believers? What, what does the, 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 the commands of God do to the believer? Well, this brings us to the third point. Sin's attempts to abuse continue even in the Christian. I want you to watch Paul. I know this is hard stuff, guys. I understand that. But I want you to watch Paul transition from talking about being a non-believer to being a believer. Check it out. Verse 13. He says, To that which is good bring death to me. By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, we got that so far. The law has been exposing sin in the unbeliever, but even in the Christian. Look at verse 14. I think Paul's talking about himself as a Christian. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I want to make sure you're careful that Paul's not saying these things to explain away his sin. He's not saying these things to show how he's not responsible. Do not use Romans 7 to justify your sin. Do not use Romans 7 to, to say, look, this is, this is me and this is why I can affirm my sin. No, no. Just use Romans 7 to acknowledge the struggle. Paul is acknowledging that even as a believer, he is still struggling and feels helpless and powerless. And if I could give a main point to Romans 7, it would kind of be this. Not only... Does the law expose sin in unbelievers? But the law continues to expose sin even in believers. I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Not only does the law expose sin in unbelievers, but the law continues to expose sin in the life of believers. And why is that the case? Because we are not in heaven. We are not perfect. We are still have some old effects of sins. We can say the commands of God are great and we want to do them, but on this side, before we're with the Lord, we are not perfect. And sometimes we don't do what we want to do, right? And that which we don't want to do, we end up doing. It's because of the law. It continues to expose sin. And it's such an encouraging chapter. Let's keep going. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
<laughs> so Paul's kind of saying, look, there's still this bent within me to sin. There's still this flesh where he calls it indwelling sin. Or some of you, your versions say sinful nature. Or nothing good dwells within me. Or this power waging war. And we've, we've talked about this in terms of zombie flesh. Remember the walking dead? Like we've been crucified in Christ. But there's still something hanging around in our old ways. We've, we've died. But sin kind of wants to live on. And, and, and Paul's kind of saying, look, left to yourselves. These old ways will come and they will entrap you and they will take over you because there's always going to be this pull within you to go and return to your old ways. I mean, you can think about it in terms of addiction. And I don't know if any of you have ever been addicted to smoking and then you've conquered that addiction, but chances are you still have this pull to smoke. Like There's something still there. The same with AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. You ever go into meetings, they, they, though they may not be drinking anymore, they would say, you know what, there's still this pull for me to return to alcohol. And the concept here is that uh, Christians, all of us, as, even as Christians, are addicted to sin. And we have victory in Christ, but there's still this pull to go back to be in our old ways. Now, I'm going to feed you a question to ask your ethos leader tonight, and perhaps you want to ask this to really trip them up or to trip up the group. So I'm going to ask it beforehand so you can discuss it later, all right? It's not on the list of questions, so let's stir it up right now, right here. Someone may ask this question. How much can I keep on sinning and still be a Christian? How much can I keep doing this stuff and still be saved. You ever wonder that? I know you're going to ask it tonight. So go and just ask it now. We'll return to it in a moment. But keep thinking about that. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel that? I, I mean, I doubt you've ever used that terminology. Wretched man that I am. Wretched woman that I am. Maybe never. Maybe used other terms like "I'm such an idiot." I just keep doing the same foolish things over and over and over again, because on this side of heaven, the law still exposes sin, and we continue to fall short. But my brothers and sisters, this is not the complete story. Romans seven is not the end of the story. Paul does not end Romans on Romans seven. You are not to think that in your Christian life you are to continually feel powerless and helpless in facing sin. And I just want to kind of go out on a limb here again. And I want to say that this description in Romans 7 is not supposed to be the normal Christian life. Yes, it's normal in the sense that you will experience this struggle. But get this. You're not going to experience this struggle and say, I am completely powerless to change. I am completely helpless to change. 
Because I know that there are some Christians that will say, you know what, I'm, I'm in my sin. And the reason why I'm in my sin is because I am a Romans 7 Christian. Romans 7 describes the, the tension and the struggle and I keep doing the same things I don't want to do. I am a Romans 7 Christian. And then you'll have some Christians go, oh man, you're a Romans 7 Christian, but I'm a Romans 8 Christian. I walk in victory. I don't mess around with Romans 7. I live in Romans 8. That's where I get the victory. And I want to say, hey man, Romans 7, yeah, that's part of the struggle. Yeah, but it does lead to the victory. We'll come there in a moment and we'll spend several weeks on the victory. But how much can a Christian sin and still be a Christian? You don't want Romans 7 being how you roll. You don't want Romans 7 being your definition of the victorious Christian life. If you think that Romans 7 is what it's all about, you're like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing what I don't want to do, that's great, fine. Then you're never making it to Romans 8. And you've got to ask yourself some serious questions. Because is the Christian life all about sinning all the time and never having any growth? No, no. Bible talks about there is this progressive change, this progressive sanctification. And it, I wish it was more like, but it's more really slow, right? But there's no fruit in your life, no desire for change. Oh, maybe you're not a Roman 7 Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Because we want to be like Paul and in our struggle, get to that point where we ask that question. Who is going to rescue me from these issues that I'm facing of my sin? Who is going to come through for me? We want to cry out in desperation in our struggle. And that is going to lead to the last point. That Jesus rescues us from this abuse. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, yeah, there's going to be this continuing struggle. Like, I want to go this direction with my mind of obedience, but my flesh, my old ways, and Adam are going to keep pulling me this way. But Paul's saying, hey, there is victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only is there going to be a future victory in heaven when we are free from sin, but there is victory right now in Jesus where we are free from the power of sin. We are free now from the power of sin. It no longer has to reign over us. Yes, there is going to continue to be this struggle and this fight and this war, but who's going to bring the victory? You? Nope. The law? Nope. The commands? Nope. Jesus Christ is going to bring the victory. And you say, how so? And I say, come back. Romans 8 is coming. The victory in Christ. The victory in the power of the Holy Spirit. But for those of you who are struggling, which is all of us, waging war with sin, Jesus meets you in your struggle and provides a way of forgiveness and change. And I know that chapter 7 can be kind of a downer. And I know that some of you, this has kind of been kind of heady, and I understand that, but your struggle's not very heady. It, it, it bothers you. It wears on you. And I know that some of you are discouraged right now in your struggle. So what I'm going to attempt to do is, is, is kind of bring you up a little bit, give you a, a couple of encouragements, and then pray for you, okay? Here, here's some encouragement. Are you ready? If you're struggling with sin right now, 
the first encouragement is this. Good. <laughs> I'm glad. And you're like, well, how that, how's that encouraging? Because I want sin to bother you. It, it's good that you're struggling. It's good. You're like, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Because it's showing that it bothers you. Maybe before you were a believer, maybe you felt kind of guilty for doing things, but not really. But now you're like, well, I'm convicted. I don't like this. And I'm saying, that is good. When I have people come into my office and tell me that their, their sins and their stuff, I'm like, Man, give me a high five. No, I don't mean it that way, but I want them to acknowledge this. It's good that you're struggling. It's good that you're convicting. And I've been, I've been pastor maybe 16, 17, whatever years. And I, and I used to think that when people were convicted, that that alone was enough. Right? People used to come up to me and say, man, pastor, I feel so convicted. That was a great sermon. Man, I was so convicted. And then they would come up the next week. Man, you got me right here. You just knocked me over. I'm so convicted. And I used to think, yeah, I got you. But then as I started thinking about this over the years, I thought, man, they're convicted, but nothing's changing. So conviction's not enough. I mean, you know those accountability groups where you show up and you you list your sin, 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 and say, man, I am so convicted. And you come back the next week, list your sin, 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 sin. Man, I'm so convicted. I mean, I just want to it almost sounds like a confessional booth. Yeah? I did this, 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 and I feel bad. I'll see you in two months. I did this, 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 feel bad. I say, no, 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 no. Conviction's good, but I'm not too impressed with conviction. Oh, I am, of course. I am, but it's got to move to something else. And here's the, the last piece of encouragement. If you're convicted in your struggle, which I hope you are, let it make you come to Jesus. And cry out to him. Say, Jesus, I'm a mess. Will you forgive me? Will you change me? Because my brothers and sisters, you are powerless. You are helpless to change in and of yourself. Just like we would tell the the non-Christian. We would tell the non-Christian, there is no self-salvation. We should tell the Christian, there is no self-salvation sanctification. Yes, you put in effort, and yes, you strategize for righteousness, but left to yourself, you are not going to grow spiritually. You are helpless. You need to find your dependence on Jesus Christ. You need to find your rescue in Jesus Christ. I really want your struggle to move beyond the conviction to an intimacy with Christ, where are crying out to him for, for a deeper relationship to do a greater work in you for change. It's interesting, this struggle, as terrible as it can be, can lead to some sweet times with the Lord. So be encouraged in your struggle. There's a conviction there. And may that conviction lead to you coming to Jesus in complete dependence. Because he's there to meet you. He's there to give you grace. He's there to forgive you. And he's there to change you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that there is grace in the gospel to save the repentant sinner. And thank you, Father, there is grace in the gospel to give victory to the struggling believer.
And Lord, may you bring us to a point where we cry out for help, where we acknowledge that there is an ongoing struggle, that we would not stay there. We would confess it to you. We would share it with our brothers and sisters. And we ask, Lord, that you will continue to meet us in our struggle, like you always do, with your abundance of grace. And may you forgive us and change us. In Christ's name, amen.